Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Let's do it. Talk Recorded live. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the Ludini Rock and Roll Circus, uh, yet another interview here, and this is the first time I've had somebody back for a second interview, uh, due to popular demand, uh, Vivek Tiwari, the author of The Fifth Beatle, and who's also doing a whole bunch of other amazing stuff, which we'll talk about, is uh, back with us, and uh, it's... Uh, it's been uh, it's been a couple of months or so since I, since we've spoken, and uh, in the meantime, I was just telling Vivek that I I actually read the Fifth Beetle and I was like really blown away by it. Um, what a beautiful uh, story, beautiful book, beautiful artwork, everything about it. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, thank you, Vivek. So, uh, what have you been up to in the last few months? What, what's been going on? I heard the, I heard something about you hosting a. a, a comic book awards or something like that. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Um, just about a handful of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I hosted the uh, the Harvey Awards, um, which uh, those of you who are in the comics community will be very aware of. Those of you who aren't, um, it's, it's occasionally referred to as the Golden Globes of the comic industry, uh, you know, sort of one of the top awards shows in the industry, but it, but it really is a lot more than that. Um, one of the things that's very special about the Harvey Awards is that it's an award um, nominated and and decided upon by the, the community of creators. Um, so it really is sort of an award of your peers, um, so it's a it's a very very uh, special award ceremony. The Fifth Beetle. Um, I'm very proud to say we we won two Harvey Awards last year, uh, including Best Original Graphic Novel. Um, so I was incredibly proud of that. Um, but then to be asked to actually host the ceremony uh, was completely surreal. I mean, I, I when I got the invitation, I thought it was a joke. You know, my, <laughs> my background is in the music industry, and I, I really thought it was like one of my old friends from MTV, and I was being punked. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, this just can't be real. I mean, the 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 run that the Fifth Beatle has had me on has been so happy and humbling and and really surreal. Um, it's one thing to win a Harvey Award, which was like putting me on cloud nine, but that to then be asked to, to host the ceremony, it just felt like it was unreal. I mean, I, I still, it was a, about a month ago, and I, I still kind of can't believe it happened. If I if I woke up tomorrow and you told me, oh, that was a dream that never really happened, I would have I would understand, and I would say, best dream ever, you know. <laughs> hey, uh, so tell us a little bit about. Um, who, uh, the Harvey Awards are named after our Harvey Kurtzman. That's right. Can you t- tell us a little bit about? Uh, give us a little background on Harvey Kurtzman. Sure. So, so Harvey Kurtzman is uh, is you know the one of the comic industry's uh, uh, greatest legends and and truly uh, an inspiring creator. He's probably best known for having been the guy who created Mad Magazine. Um, Mad was his his brainchild, and and really the first uh, several issues of Mad Magazine were almost entirely written uh, by Harvey Kurtzman, and that in itself would have would be enough for uh, for a legacy and for um, you know for for uh, for entry into the the, the legendary status of, of comic creators. But on top of that, he was a brilliant writer in virtually every other genre of comics, science fiction 
horror, um, war comics he created uh, or, or wrote the, the very seminal Two-Fisted Tales um, and Frontline Combat. I don't know if you're aware of those titles, but they're, um, they're you know, uh, war comics from the 50s and 60s that um, – that really kind of uh, kind of rewrote the genre of war of war comics. He he described them as as comics with a conscience. So they were comics that that didn't uh, glorify war, nor nor did they glorify our side in the war, um, which would would be pretty controversial today. Uh, but certainly was um, you know was unheard of back in the days that that Harvey Kurtzman was um, was doing it. So he really was a was a pioneer, um, not just in satire and spoof, which is kind of what he's best known for. Um, so he's somebody that. That, um, that really has been incredibly inspiring to me over my life. Um, I'm a huge fan of Mad Magazine, and that's kind of how I, um, how I was introduced to Harvey was by discovering Mad Magazine. For me, I discovered Mad in the 1980s, which was, you know, I was born in 73, so long after Harvey's tenure on the magazine had ended. Um, but, uh, but like any fanboy geek, uh, you know, I, I, when you become obsessed with a thing, you go back to the origin. You want to know who created it, why did they create it, how did they create it, what else did they go on to do? And that's kind of what brought me into, um, into understanding Harvey's history. And as I said, it's been because he, he worked so successfully in so many different genres, not just in satire, what he's best known for. You know, as a young writer, um, that was incredibly uh, uh, eye-opening and inspiring to me. So to host an awards uh, ceremony in his, you know, named after the great Harvey Kurtzman was a, a huge honor for me. Um, you know, again, just a very surreal and, and joyful experience. What is um, in the in the in the graphic novel uh, world? Um, what is who are the what's the who are the authors that you really like? I mean, I know the super popular ones that you know may had movies made, but um, what's what's on the horizon out there? What's cutting edge? Well, I mean, you know, I guess those are two different questions. You know, a lot of the um, the authors in in the graphic novel space, and and graphic novel, you know, implies sort of novel length. Uh, comic book, you know, so mm-hmm. so it's one contained story in a novel length uh, format, okay. um, you know, and a lot of the ones that have been really uh, meaningful to me are by by authors who are aren't aren't uh, you know who've been around for a while. I wouldn't say they're they're new artists by any stretch of the imagination, um, but uh, you know Frank Miller's work on on you know be, best known for The Dark Knight, but um, but he didn't you know Ronin to me was an incredible was a book that really changed my life, and and he also wrote the Sin City books, which are probably you know known for their movie adaptations. But for me, uh, Frank Miller's work goes back to to Ronin and to um, and to The Dark Knight uh, in particular. Um, Alan Moore's work. Uh, you know, on on most famous for Watchmen, but he wrote a um, a Batman story called The Killing Joke, which is quite possibly my favorite superhero story of all time. Um, Neil Gaiman's work on The Sandman was very uh, seminal and and inspirational to me. And then before that, you know, go, moving out of the graphic novel space, but just in in terms of comics writing, uh, Chris Claremont, who um, who had a run on the X Men. That um, that famously included the Dark Phoenix saga. Um, you know, those books were were books that I grew up with. You know, they were incredibly, incredibly inspiring to me. And Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, their their first run at their self-published studios, Mirage Studios, their first run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Which those of you who who aren't huge fans of the title may not may not realize that the initial turtles were were very violent, very mature, very adult. They weren't the 
the super kid-friendly, you know, pizza-loving turtles that, um, <laughs> they, they, that, they that were best known for. <laughs> you know, and, and, and they really actually were inspired by, um, by Frank Miller's uh, Ronin and, and by Frank Miller's Daredevil run. Um, so, so it all sort of cycles back, uh, cycles back around. But those are, those are some of the titles that were incredibly meaningful to me. Um, P. Craig Russell is another um, graphic novel author. That, um, that's been very inspiring to me. He, he's done an, an incredible uh, body of work, um, but the work that, that really um, moved me was that he adapted a number of operas, um, you know, including Wagner's Ring Cycle. He, he took the, these operas and adapted them into graphic novel form. Um, you know, oh. uh, just an incredibly progressive thing to do. And, and for me, being a music guy, you know, um, you know, to see how he took these, these work, you know, you, you, the idea of adapting a graphic no, an opera into a graphic Graphic novel might seem strange. You know, opera is, is, is very li- – there's no dialogue in opera. It's all music. You know, so how do you do that? And if you, if you read his graphic novel, you'll see that he does it quite brilliantly, and it really shows you um, the, the crossover potential between music and comics, which is obviously something that, um, that I've, 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 you know, uh, professionally played in with The Fifth Beatle. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I know I'm babbling here, but I could talk about comic creators <laughs> I, I that have inspired me for hours, pa- you know. Yeah, no, it's something you're passionate about, so I wanted to get you to open up a little bit about it. Um, so speaking of the, your graphic novel, uh, The Fifth Beetle, what is coming up? I know uh, when we spoke last time, um, we were talking about a, uh, you know, the, the, the possibilities of the, of the film and, you know, some really exciting things you had you already have a music license for the Beatles and everything. So has there been any movement? Yeah, so, you know, I, 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 um, it's been such a whirlwind uh, year for me that I, I can't remember exactly when last we were on. Um, <laughs> okay. so, I, so I can't remember how much of this is new. But, but as you said, you know, very excitingly, we've secured Beatles music rights, um, which included getting the, uh, the approval of the band, meaning Paul, Ringo, Yoko Ono, and Olivia Harrison all had to uh, approve my request to, um, to get music rights. So they've approved our, the script and they've sort of, uh, you know, unofficially, uh, I wouldn't, endorsed is a big word because it's not an official Beatles project, but they've all really sort of, you know, g- given me the, uh, the go-ahead um, to, uh, to access the music, which is amazing. We're, we are literally the first and only film in history uh, to have secured their approval and to have secured music rights. Um, it, film about the band, you know, if you go back and look at other Beatles movies like, um, like uh, Nowhere Boy about the early days of John Lennon or Backbeat right. about their time in Hamburg, you'll see there's no Beatles music in those movies and it's because they've never approved a script before. So, so that was a huge, uh, huge hurdle that we overcame and, and certainly a great honor and a great responsibility. And has really been a linchpin for our film efforts. And uh, again, I can't remember when last we spoke, but we've um, we secured our financing this year, which was a, obviously another huge hurdle. You know, the music rights are kind of a, were, were kind of the big creative hurdle, and then the big financial hurdle is you know getting the money to make the movie. <laughs> you um, have that. So we uh, you got to have that. And uh, we um, so we did a deal with I Am Global, who are a very um, very well respected uh, film financiers and producers. Um, they have offices all over the world, and, and the head of their company, Stuart Ford, is actually a Liverpool boy. He came, he uh, he grew up in Liverpool, so um, so you could tell that uh, you know this is a project that has both um, you know both a professional as well as a personal connection for him. So I am Global are, are wonderful partners on the project. We're very um, happy to have them on board. And uh, Simon Cowell, uh, the music impresario, sort of best known for American Idol, um, has come on board also as a co-producer. And um, you know, he is somebody that has. Uh, he told me when we first sat down to meet that he, that Brian Epstein was somebody whose career he had long admired. And like many people who've um, read my material, he said that uh, you know, after reading The Fifth Beatle, 
he realized he, that he knew so very little about Brian's life, even though that he had been, been inspired by him. And so Simon really was, was coming from the same place that, that the, all of us have. You know, everyone who's been involved in this project has really viewed it as a, as a bit of a labor of love. And so, um, you know, Simon, obviously, uh, there's a wealth of things that Simon can bring to the table. So, um, so I feel like I've got a fantastic team in place for the film. We are very aggressively in conversations with directors, and uh, I expect, um, you know, in the next handful of months, hopefully by the end of the year, but if not at the end of the year, you know, early into the next, um, we should be announcing our director. And uh, after that, you know, with the music rights in place and with the financing in place, um, there is no reason why we shouldn't be shooting this film next year. So we're in very, very good shape. We have a number of folks who are um, are interested in, in helming the project from a directing standpoint, and they're all wonderful directors, so um, so I can't quite drop names yet, uh, and I certainly don't want to start any rumors, but I, but I do think in the next uh, next several months we'll be making some exciting announcements on that front, and cast will come right after that, you know, right right sort of in tandem with director conversations are cast conversations, but really the types of directors that we're talking to are all guys and gals who um you know who are directors of, of note and, and have connections to cast and will have a vision and opinions on cast. So we don't want to get too into uh, playing the casting game until we have our director on board who's going to, uh, to want to be involved in that. But casting will, um, will happen sort of, you know, the discussion is sort of happening in tandem with the directors, but real casting efforts are going to happen once a director's on board. So for those of you who are listening in the audience, if you're interested in getting kind of breaking news on that, um, you know, please uh, follow us on Facebook. We're at the Fifth Beetle on Facebook. We're on Twitter at, at Fifth Beetle, and we have a mailing list and a website that can be found at fifthbeetle.com. So please follow us on any number of those uh, those media and um, those social media rather, and um, we'll be you'll be hearing you know news about director and cast soon. I was going to ask you, and you probably can't comment on this because, since you're already talking to people, um, but I was just kind of going, I was going to ask, you don't have to answer, if hmm. you had a fantasy director, you know, if you had, could pick anybody in the world to do it. But if you, if you were talking to people, I don't want you to alienate anybody. Yeah, no, you know, and, and, and the, truth is, the truth is I really don't. You okay. know, um, you know, I, uh, I, for me, as I'm sure you can tell from having talked to me once, and, and I hope you can can tell from the little bit we've talked now, <laughs> you know, this is an, a huge labor of love project for me. It's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And so, at the end of the day, it really the the person that's going to be right for this is the person that's going to prove to me that they have, um, you know, maybe not equal passion. I couldn't imagine anyone being as passionate as I am, um, but somebody who is passionate about it. Passion is is going to be at the end of the day the thing that will be most important to me well you know that that, that, that you know it, it's a director with passion you know that. um with it being a graphic now this is something i have and i think we could talk about this um just just your thoughts um with it being a graphic novel and we did talk about sin city and 300 and, and some uh, would you consider this being done in a surrealistic sort of style like that or are you looking more of a naturalistic sort of or is that your vision what's your vision you know it, it's a good question and and you know I'm incredibly proud of the graphic novel and so when we're sitting down with directors we're making sure that they have a copy of the graphic novel and have read it alongside the uh, the film script but I'm always very keen to point out that I am not viewing the graphic novel as a storyboard for the film. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, that that worked brilliantly with Sin City. You know, the, the Sin City graphic novels virtually um, exist like storyboards. You know, I mean, um, they, they they were not built to be storyboards. Let me be clear about that. But but I'm saying the filmmakers, Robert Rodriguez and, and the other folks who worked on that for those films, um, they they, uh, they um, you know Frank Miller uh, worked on those films himself. You know, they looked at the graphic novels like storyboards 
storyboards and, and the resulting film very much has that feel, like it feels like the comic book come to life, which works right. brilliantly for Sin City, but that is not what we're going for here. You know, I'm hoping that, um, that our director will be inspired by the tone and the feel of the graphic novel, mm-hmm. and those of you who've read it uh, who are listening will know that there are fantasy sequences, there are dream sequences, there are hallucination sequences, so there is a sort of fantastical tone for it um, that is in the film script. You know, I've written the screenplay for the film myself, and, and that, that remains in the film. So, it, it, you know, the film should have um, some stylistic and tonal similarities. You know, I, I, I describe the film as being a cross between or my vision for it is being a cross between a straightforward biopic like a Ray or a Walk the Line with something more fanciful like Pink Floyd's The Wall. You know, there are a number of those very surreal fantasy sequences like what you'll get out of The Wall um, that I uh, that I hope, um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to um, to also see in, in The Fifth Beetle. So, um, so, so, yes, it will have a, a tone and a feel of the graphic novel, but it's not going to go quite ne- nearly so far as something like Sin City. At least that's my... my, my belief. Um, again, once, once a director comes on board, you know, I want a director that's going to share my vision, but I also want a director that's going to bring their vision to it. You know, and if, if I sit down with the director and they convince me that we should turn the graphic novel uh, into a film very directly in a storyboard kind of way, I'm open to that, but, it, but it's not how I see it. It's not how okay, I see, see it. See, that surprises me, Vivek, um, uh, because, and, and um, not because of you personally, but you would think with all the years, what it was like 20 years or something, this has been that you've been, this is your dream to work on the Brian Epstein story, that you would be willing to, that you're cool or you're okay with somebody kind of bringing their own thing to it. You don't seem to be sort of like, you know, uh, it doesn't seem to be overly precious to you to the sense that you can't allow somebody else to. Uh, um, so I wouldn't be like that. <laughs> I would be That's funny. I mean, you know, if you, if you were uh, if you were sitting in on some of the internal conversations uh, about the project, you might not describe me as being uh, not very precious. You know, you you might be singing a different tune. So, so let, let me be honest. It it is somewhere in between. You know, I I, I I am incredibly protective over this project. Gotcha. Um, you know, I'm the writer of the screenplay. I'm not opposed to bringing another writer on board to to work on it with me. You know, that's how films often work. You know, you sometimes have a number of writers on it, but I do not intend this to be a project where I just hand it over to a director and walk away and watch my script be rewritten and the vision be taken elsewhere. I just can't allow that to happen. You know, so so there are a number of ways in which um, which I intend to to make sure that my my vision is intact. Um, however, filmmaking is a collaborative process, and and uh, and as I said, all the directors we're talking to are folks of vision, and I'm I'm excited about somebody coming to the table and and bringing their own vision and. Their their own creativity to it, but there's certain key elements that that uh, that need to be need to be in place, and, and that's why I'm hoping to find somebody that shares my vision. So I don't want to suggest I'm open to somebody just just uh, you know <laughs> taking it and doing whatever they want with it. I, I'm looking for that that really tricky uh, person who's both going to love my vision and want to collaborate with me and embrace what I've done, but also who's going to bring something creative to the table. That's it it really does situation. need to be a bit of both. I mean, at this point, the Beatles have entrusted me with their music. You know, they've given right. me music rights where they've never done that before to anyone else. And so I have a responsibility to honor that responsibility, you know. So um, so I feel like that's a responsibility I have to take. Um, the Fifth Beatle graphic novel has sold so incredibly well all over the world. You know, it's a New York Times bestseller here in the States, number one New York Times bestseller. You know, won all those comic industry awards. It was a, added to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and into 
know, they're a library and permanent archives. It's named a, a finalist for best LGBT graphic novel from the Lambda Literary Society. In the States, it's just the accolades and the sales numbers are, are, have been amazing. And abroad, it's been translated into a number of foreign languages where it's also done incredibly well. It's gone number one in a number of territories from, from Italy to India. You know, and, and the reason I'm mentioning all that is not to, not to boast or to pat myself on the back, but it's, it's to show that we have you know, fans. We have people who love the, the book. And because of those fans, I feel like I have a responsibility to them to make sure that the film, you know, if it's not going to be a, a storyboard, as I said, uh, you know, but it, it, it still you know, respects the heart of this, this piece of art that is no longer just about me and Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker, who are the two artists. It's not just about us. Now we have fans, too, who are a part of the Fifth Beetle family, and I need to do right by the fans. It's you know? kind of life of its own. That's exactly right. So, so I have to take care of the, you know, I, I have to, to do right by the Beatles who, who entrusted me with their music. I have to do right by the fans who've, who've supported this project over a number of years. And finally, like most importantly, you know, I, Brian Epstein is somebody whose life has been incredibly inspiring to me. And I'm, I have to do right by the legacy of the man who this, who this project is about. You know, um, you'll know from our last conversation, you know, what, what, what inspired me most about Brian was not even so much what he did for the Beatles, but the fact that he did what he did for the Beatles with uh, overcoming a number of personal obstacles. And, and well, he was, talk about that. you know, the, he was the ultimate outsider. So, so right. I have to do right by, by that guy as well, you know. In many ways, I mean, there's so many layers to the, to the story, you know, um, because you don't with, you know, with his sort of like, image and everything, you don't really think of him as like, like really rock and roll, but he really is because of the outsider thing. Um, what I wanted to ask you uh, about um, was how, you, first of all, you negotiated this, I think, per- perfectly in the book. Thank um, you. The, 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 his, uh, his gay, in his, uh, his, you know, homosexuality mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is a, is a point of contention in the story with him, sure. within himself and it's, you know, everything in its surroundings, but it's not heavy-handed. Well, thank you. That's the thing I really loved about this. Like, it just works. It's it's a part of the story you can't ignore. Um, And um, that adds to sort of like a sadness to the character, although he is very... Victorious. I mean, over and over, Hal and everybody's telling him, you know, what what a great job you're doing. But he still sort sort of has this sort of like holding back where he doesn't really see himself as a success. And I, it, you feel that was because of his insecurity over, you know, the pre- social pressure in England over being gay. I mean, you didn't say that directly in the in yeah. The book, but. You know, I mean, putting it the way you just put it would, would be a little bit too simplistic. You know, I mean, I okay, think that, I think that um, you know, human beings are we're, we're all very complicated individuals. You know, um, and and Brian certainly um, had a had a psychology that in which he was incredibly ambitious. Um, but his accomplishments were never enough. You know, he was never satisfied. Um, you know, he was never, could never sort of sit back and just be happy with what he had achieved. Or even, you know, it was very rare for him to take moments off to even enjoy the moments of success that he had. And, you know, that's for a number of reasons. And, and one of those is, you know, his, um, his fear of his homosexuality coming to light. Because in the, the, in the UK in the 1960s, it was a felony to be gay. Like literally two men holding hands walking down the street, to, or two women for that matter or two people of the same sex, you know, could risk being holding hands, could risk being thrown in jail. Um, you know, the situation was so bad back then. At the end of Brian's life, he was uh, he was seeing a doctor in London, a doctor in Liverpool, and a doctor in New York City, all of whom were prescribing uh, pills to him 
to help uh, cure him of his homosexuality, you know, pills which would eventually contribute to his uh, his early demise. He died at the age of 32 from an overdose of prescription pills. So clearly, you know, on a number of levels, his homosexuality was something that um, that caused a, a, lot, a lot of uh, confusion and grief for him. You know, he, he was constantly in fear that his um, his sexual orientation would come to light and would get him thrown in jail and, and would reflect badly on his clients, would reflect badly on the Beatles, who he loved so dearly. Um, and so, you know, he, uh, he as a result, of, you know, for those of you who've read the book, you'll know that he often turned to, to the worst case scenarios, to, to, to dive, you know, to dark, dirty, rough bars and, and uh, relationships that ended in blackmail and, you know, the, these, these sort of terrible situations. And here's a guy who dedicated his life to helping the, the Beatles, a band like the Beatles, spread a message of love around the globe. You know, and that's, that's might sound awfully cheesy, but, but really that's when you boil it down, that's what the Beatles were all about. You know, she loves you, love Lovely Rita, all you need is love, etc. And, and yet he, you know, to use another Beatles lyric, he had to, to hide his own love away. He dies at 32, having helped spread this message of love, and yet never having had a proper boyfriend. So clearly, all of that is going to to add to his to his um, you know to his emotional turmoil and, and to his insecurities, and and those are all things that played into his his needing to be ambitious, needing to show the world, look what I can do, but at the same token, never totally being happy. But is it just about that? I, you know, I think, I think no, no human being is quite that simple. Um, you know, he was also Jewish at a period um, where uh, anti-Semitism was rampant in the United Kingdom. And uh, this might sound strange in modern years, but, but Jews did, just did not work extensively in the music industry in the UK. He wasn't the only Jewish person, but he, they were few and far between. You know, it was run by people like Sir Joseph Lockwood, the chairman of EMI, you know, white Christian knights of the British Empire. wasn't run by young people with last names like Epstein. Um, obviously, times have changed, but that was the case in the 1960s. So his, his Judaism was also something that I think, uh, you know, contributed um, to his, uh, his, his, his ambition and his drive and, and his insecurities and his inability to be happy, you know, and, and Liverpool, you know, Brian, uh, Liverpool prior to the Beatles was a port town that had no cultural significance, or, or let, me, let me use a, a better word, no cultural influence. You know, there was certainly a, a music scene in, in, the liver, in Liverpool that was wonderful that Brian wound up tapping into, but prior to the Beatles, you know, it, it's not a town that anyone in the music industry or in the arts and entertainment industries would look to for the next big thing. You know, um, that obviously changed after the Beatles, but, but back then, nobody would th have thought of Liverpool as a hotbed of, of cr creativity, of, you know. And so, so he was overcoming that. You know, Brian was a guy that, um, you know, if you heard, if you listen to interviews, you know, he doesn't have a Liverpool accent. He, has, he speaks the Queen's English, you know, and that's a bit of a put on. You know, Brian, Brian came out of Liverpool, but he, you know, that w Liverpool was something that he loved. You know, as you know from the Fifth Beatle, he always tells the band, it's important that we're from Liverpool, that we're provincial, that we stick true to who we are. But on the same token, he put on this fake accent and tried to, you know, <laughs> pretend that he was more sophisticated than somebody from Liverpool might initially have been thought to be in the 1960s in the UK. So that's also something that's uh, that's a that's a source of, of of both conflict. He loves Liverpool, but he's ashamed of Liverpool. He well, he wants to embrace Liverpool, but he speaks the Queen's English, you know. And and so there's a lot of things that go into Brian's psychology. I don't want to just it's just say it's just about the homosexuality. No, 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 no. I but, didn't mean to imply that. 
Keith, no, I don't think you sure. were, but I'm just sort of trying to paint the full picture. And, and, and I'm going to shut up now, but I just want to say, like, because, because the homosexual aspect of things was, was illegal, I mean, it was literally against the law, right. like, that probably played into his psyche more than anything else. Like, yes, it was difficult to be Jewish at a period of, of anti-Semitism, but at least it wasn't illegal, you know, whereas it was illegal to be gay. So, so I would say that, that you're on to something there when you, when you sort of point that out as a, as a primary source of, of, uh, of his, you know, psychological condition um, or his psychological makeup. But, um, but it's not the only thing, I guess, is what I'm saying, you know. I He's think the three, the three touchstones are his homosexuality, his, his, his religion being Jewish at a time of anti-Semitism, and being from Liverpool, his geography. Those are the three things that all together made him into sort of this ultimate outsider. The combination of uh, uh, insecurity and moxie, and which I would like to love to ask you about that character, hmm. moxie. Now, yeah. is that, now, I don't know enough about it. So I'm not sure. Is was Moxie a real person based on a real person, or yeah. is that a sort so, of literary device? Because the name is perfect. Yeah. So, so those of you who have not read the book uh, and um, and don't like spoilers, I might suggest you uh, <laughs> you turn off your uh, your computer or close your ears for the next five minutes because I'm about to give a spoiler. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's this is also. I mean, we're not you know this this is not something that a simple Google Google search wouldn't also reveal. I mean, there there was no character from Beatles history named Moxie. So in okay. that sense, Moxie is my authorial creation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, and you'll notice there's a there's a a moment at the end of the book where where Brian's talking to Nat Weiss and Nat says, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about when Brian's sort of going off about Moxie. And so there's a little brief, uh, maybe suggestion, intimation that um, that Moxie may be a figment of Brian's imagination. Mm, she great. may literally be his Moxie, his ambition. Yes. You know, uh, his I, I, was, I got chills. Really, when I got to the end, I got chills. It was well, thank you. Thank you. That, and that, that is sort of what I hoped the character of Moxie would, would do. You know, and, and if you were to run the sixth sense test on, on Moxie, you would see that she never interacts with other characters. So she really could fill that role. However, let me be very clear, you know, I'm a bit of a historian myself, and for those of you who are Beatles historians out there, you, you, you should know that I've done my research, I've been researching this project for 25 years, and everything that Moxie does and everything that Moxie feels is based on a real, real feeling or a real person. And, um, and she, so she is a conflation of four real-life people. She's part uh, Wendy Hansen, who is one of... Um, Brian's female assistants. She's mostly Joanne Peterson. Uh, she was Joanne Newfield back in the 1960s, but she's married now, and she's Joanne Peterson, who's another of Brian's female assistants. And she's part Alistair Taylor, one of them, his male assistants. And she's part Peter Brown, who, was, uh, who worked very closely with Brian and, and went on to work closely with the Beatles after Brian passed away. And Peter is now one of the UK's uh, most successful uh, PR executives. So everything that Moxie does, you know, is, one, is something that one of those four people did. You know, Alistair Taylor took Brian to the Cavern Club. Uh, you know, um, Joanne Peterson went to a ball with Brian and danced with him, and it was a wonderful night in her life, and she was there when Brian died. Um, Wendy Hansen helped Brian with all the clearances on the Sgt. Pepper's album, which isn't in the book, but that sequence is actually in the film. So, so you know, everything that Moxie does 
um, even though she is, is, is technically a creation of mine, um, is something that actually was done by a real assistant of, of Brian. So, so she's a mixed bag. You know, she's based on, on truth. There's nothing in there that's a, that, that a historian could claim, like, that's ridiculous to suggest some assistant would do that for Brian, because it's something that an assistant did. But all the same, Moxie is still kind of a, a creation of mine or a figment of his imagination, or, you know, she represents his ambition. She's sort of all of those things. Um, okay. I, I know that uh, Lenora told me that you, you, you're a little, a little bit limited on time today. So before we uh, wrap up, you have some new things coming. So why don't we, uh, we know that the movie, we're all excited, but waiting for bated, with bated breath for the fifth Beatle movie. I can't wait. Um, but thank you. Have, you. You're not a one trick pony. <laughs> You've got a lot of stuff going on. Are you, what, you have a, a young adult novel, in the works or something? What's yeah, so, so I wrote the Fifth Beatle graphic novel, as you know, and I've written the screenplay, as we've discussed. And, uh, you know, while I probably, if you were to look at my corporate background, I'm probably best known for being a, a producer on Broadway. Um, I have to say that writing is something that I just, I love doing um, and, uh, and something that I just really want to do a lot more of. And so, so my, my upcoming projects are a lot of writing projects. Um, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't really started shopping it yet, but I, ha- I am in the process of, uh, of writing a young adult novel called Asha Ascending, um, and uh, that's going to feature artwork by the, uh, the wonderful Eisner Award-winning artist Sarah Richard. Um, you could go to sarahrichard.com to see more of her work. She's amazing. And um, so it is a novel. It's not a graphic novel, but it's going to feature uh, quite a bit of art and artwork that will help to move the story along, not just artwork to, to complement the words, but to actually help with the narrative, to move the narrative forward in, in the way that a graphic novel might, even though it is a prose book. And so I'm working with Sarah on that, and I'm very, very excited about that. And um, you know, this is this this might sound overly complicated, but the brief the brief uh, log line, if you will, for Asha Ascending is you know it's set in a in a future world where teenagers access the internet um, via surgical implants, and within this world, a young uh, sort of brilliant girl coder. Um, has to assist an irresponsible party boy um, in a quest to save his mother's life as they race against evil factions to unlock the code to immortality. I know that sounds like a mouthful, and it'll make more sense when you read it, um, but that's in brief what the story is about. And, um, and if, if anyone listening would like more, more details on that as I announce them, um, I am actually, uh, in the next several months, I'm planning to put a few chapters online to give my, my fans and, and readers a taste of, of what, what to expect. So um, if anyone's interested in more on Asha Ascending, um, please follow me personally on Twitter. I'm at, at Vivek J. Tiwari, V-I-V-E-K-J-T-I-W-A-R-Y. And I'm also on Facebook at Vivek J. Tawari, and, um, and I, fr- I accept any friend requests of anyone who wants to be my friend. So please, uh, you know, follow me at, at either that. of those Vivek places. Is very fr- Vivek is a very friendly guy. Can well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And it's a way for me to keep in touch with the many people who care about what I'm up to. So, uh, so I really do like to, to use Facebook and, tw- and Twitter for that. So Asha Ascending is something that's very close to my heart. And, um, and I'm, as I said, I'm about 50 pages in, and I'm about to share some of that with the world. So that's something that is off, off to the races, up and running. And, um, you know, I've done so much, so much work in comics lately, and I hosted the Harvey Awards, as we discussed at the beginning of our chat. So I love comics very clearly, and, you know, I, I babbled for, for, for 15 minutes about my, my favorite comic <laughs> writers. So I do have more comics writing coming as well. Um, I have a few original ideas in comics that I'm just now starting to, uh, to talk to various publishers about. So you'll be seeing some more original comic work from me uh, in the coming months. Um, but I'm also in conversations with, um, with a number of uh, high-profile 
comic publishers about working on um, you know on, on well-known titles you know on on the franchises if you will so so I, I, again I can't really can't really say which ones, um, but titles that uh, that your readers, certainly, your your listeners, excuse me, certainly would have heard of. So you'll be seeing both original ideas as well as me playing in uh, in other people's sandboxes uh, in the coming months. And then finally, I have uh, have a, uh, television ideas and some other film projects that I'm also right just now starting to uh, to introduce to um, to Hollywood and and to the television networks. Um, you know, music on TV has is uh, is something that's um, that's kind of blowing up a little bit right now with shows like. Empire, um, and uh, and so that's a sweet spot for me. You know, is, is music is really very near and dear to my heart. And I came out of the music industry. I've been working for myself for the past 15 years, but before that, I worked for record labels. And if you look at all my projects, every single one of them has some kind of music core to it. You know, my graphic novels about a music manager, all my Broadway work has been uh, musicals with the exception of A Raisin in the Sun. And even A Raisin in the Sun, I cast Sean Combs or P. Diddy as the male lead, you know. So music is, is at the heart of what I do. And, and so, um, you know, m- music in, in television and film is something that's um, that's really popular right now. It's really buzzing right now. So, um, so that's, uh, so, so what I do um, is uh, is very is something the networks and the the studios are looking for. So um, so I have a number of ideas I'm pitching there as well. So it's a very very exciting time for me as a writer, um, and uh, and that's really what I'm focusing on for 2016 um, is is uh, is being able to uh, to introduce to my fans and followers and friends um, additional writing projects that I've been uh, that I've been cooking on for the past uh, little bit, and hopefully uh, we'll be ready to share with the world soon. Can't wait! I can't wait. Um, it's really amazing how music really can move the story in in and create something within the story. Uh, yeah, the other night I was watching. Uh, it was just on. Uh, my roommate was watching Boogie Nights. Uh huh. And 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 the way the the music comes in in different places, it sure. makes the, it takes us a scene where it's just okay. It's a cool scene, but when you bring the music in, it all of a sudden becomes epic. No question about it. I mean, you know, I, I name-checked, uh, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall as a touchstone for the Fifth Beatle film, and, and that's kind of the extreme example where the music sequences, you know, really do push the narrative forward, kind of like a musical, like a stage musical, mm-hmm. except it's not like characters breaking out into song, per se, but still the story moves forward. But even the best music placement, you know, with songs just being in the background or songs being played while characters are doing other things, you know, it's not just a compliment to help set a mood. It's something that really, really moves us a story forward. You know, I believe that there's really people define themselves in a large part through your musical taste. You know, it's if you if you meet somebody new and you you, you strike up a discussion about music and you find that you're into the same bands you're going to be fast friends. You know, it's like that. It's community. It's family. Mu- music is about bringing people together. And, um, and that's, that's why it's so important to me and, and why you'll find, find it in everything that I do. Uh, before we roll out of here, Vivek, just go ahead. Anything else you would like to just sort of plug, uh, mention, websites, uh, before people can get more info? Go, I know you said it a couple times. We'll yeah, I think up. I've probably already, uh, already <laughs> made my plugs, but I'll, I'll just repeat them for those of you who may be chiming in late uh, or tuning in late, rather. But um, if you're interested in learning more about The Fifth Beetle, please you know, join our mailing list or follow us online at fifthbeetle.com. We're also on Facebook at The Fifth Beetle, and we're on Twitter at at Fifth Beetle. And for my other projects, my writing projects like my YA novel, Asha Ascending, my future comic book work, and some other TV and film ideas that, um, that I hopefully will be seeing the light of day in the, in the next 
several months, you know, please follow me personally. And I'm at Twitter at, at Vivek J. Tiwari. That's V-I-V-E-K-J-T-I-W-A-R-Y. Um, and I am also on Facebook at Vivek J. Tiwari and, um, and accept all friend requests of people who want to follow what I'm up to. Um, so those are probably the key ways to find out about me. Tawari Entertainment Group, my overall company, has a website at tawarient.com, which is also a good resource for um, projects outside of the Fifth Beetle. And that's pretty much the heart of what I'm up to these days. It's, well, thank you so much, Vivek. Uh, I know you're a busy man, and I thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us and keep us updated on what you're doing. If you guys want to hear more podcasts, more interviews, you want to hear my other interview with Vivek, go to LudiniRockAndRollCircus.com, and you can see everything that we're doing, everything we got going on for you there. All right, Vivek, you have a great day, man. I'm going to hold you up, all right? Thank you so much, Lou. It's been really a joy getting to know you, and uh, you know I'm really honored that you um, that you wanted to have me back. So thanks again. And um, you know when we have more film news to share, uh, I'd love to come back yet again and uh, and make sure that we keep uh, keep the audience abreast of everything that we're up to. So honestly, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great afternoon, my man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Lou. Right, take care. Bye. Bye. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 